Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, 1 Kings chapter 1, continued. Well, as we continue in 1 Kings chapter 1, let's review. David is quite elderly. His physical health is failing. His spiritual health is nearly as sickly. He's been reluctant to name a successor to the throne. And this fact is causing concern throughout his kingdom and, and is causing infighting among his family. Now David has never been one to approach matters in a conventional way. So it's anyone's guess as to who he will choose to be the next king or if he's going to choose at all merely instead dying and then letting his sons fight it out. Now sure enough one son has decided that with David's precarious health situation and an apparently imminent death that it is only logical that is the next in line from a traditional aspect that is citing the rights of primogenitor it's time that he puts himself forth as ready to assume power that son is Adonijah son of David's wife Hagith who throws a grand banquet a big party to celebrate his coming coronation that even includes sacrifices so as to give it the appearance of religious sanction this is not rebellion he has not declared himself king but rather only as the prince in waiting now David has become a recluse and his main concerns seem to be mere day-to-day -day survival and personal comforts. He's never paid much attention to the actions of his sons, many of whom are incorrigible due to the absence of parental guidance and discipline. So David seems to have no personal knowledge of Adonia's assumption and announcement that he shall be the next king of Israel. But Nathan... David's prophet could not help but notice Adonijah's public display since it happened only a few hundred yards outside the walls of the city of David. Well, seeing Adonijah's intent unfold and knowing that God's choice for David's successor was Solomon, Nathan springs into action to bring the matter to David's attention so that Shlomo wouldn't be bypassed. He enlists Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, to insist to David that he keep his promise to her, that Shlomo assumes power after David's death. No doubt Nathan was concerned that if he were to try to go to David by himself, that the king might suspect a personal bias of wanting Solomon as successor for the purpose of ensuring that his prophecy would come to pass. After all, a prophet who misses the mark in his prophetic oracles was typically either quickly out of work or dead. Now, Bathsheba 
is no stranger to David's ways of thinking and now infamous in action. So she's easily persuaded by Natan to seek an audience with her husband. And Nathan even tells her exactly what to say and sets up this contrived drama whereby as Bathsheba is explaining that Adonijah is about to beat Solomon to the throne, Nathan will just coincidentally happen by to verify her story. Let's pick up from there today. 1 Kings 1, verse 15, uh, page 366 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Bathsheba went into the king in his room. The king was very old. Abishag the Shunammite was in attendance uh, on the king. And Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself uh, to the king. And the king asked, what do you want? And she answered him, my lord, you swore by Adonai your God to your servant. Your son Shlomo will be king after me. He will sit on my throne. But now, here is Adonia ruling as king. And you, my lord, the king, don't know anything about it. He has killed oxen, fattened calves, and sheep in great numbers. He has summoned all the sons of the king. Eviatar the Cohen, Yoav the commander of the army. But he didn't summon Shlomo, your servant. As for you, my lord the king, all Israel's watching you. They are waiting for you to tell them who is to sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. If you don't, then when my lord the king sleeps with his ancestors, I and my son Shlomo will be considered criminals. Right then, while she was still talking with the king, Natan the prophet entered. They told the king, Natan the prophet is here. And after coming into the king's presence, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Natan said, My lord king, did you say, Adonijah is to be king after me? He will sit on my throne? For he's gone down today and killed oxen, fattened calves, and sheep in great numbers. He summoned all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, Abiatar the Cohen. Right now they're eating and drinking in his presence and proclaiming, Long live king Adonijah! But he didn't summon me, your servant, or Sadok the Cohen, or Baniah the son of Yehoyoda, or your servant Shlomo. Is this authorized by my lord the king without your having told your servant who would sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And King David answered by saying, Summon Bathsheba to me. She entered the king's presence and stood before the king. Then the king swore an oath. As Adonai lives, who has delivered me from all adversity, as I swore to you by Adonai, the God of Israel, your son Shlomo will be king after me. He will sit on my throne in my place. So will I do it today. Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, prostrating herself to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. King David said, Summon Sadok the Cohen, Nathan the prophet, Baniah the son of Jehoiada. They came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord. Have Shlomo my son ride on my own mule, bringing him down to the Gihon. There Sadok the Cohen and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Sound the shofar and say, Long live King Solomon. Then escort him back. He's to come and sit on my throne. For he's to take my place as king. I have appointed him to rule over Israel and Judah. Benaiah responded to the king by saying, Amen. 
May Adonai, the king of my lord the king, confirm it. Just as Adonai has been with my lord the king, so may he be with Shlomo and make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord king David. So Sadok the Kohen, Nathan the prophet, Benyah the son of Yehoyada, and the Kariti and Peliti went down and Solomon rode on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Sadok the Kohen took the horn of olive oil out of the tent and anointed Solomon. They sounded the shofar and all the people shouted, Long live King Shlomo! All the people escorted him back, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the earth shook with the sound. Adonia and all his guests heard it while they were finishing their meal, but it was Yoab who, when he heard the blast of the shofar, asked, That noise, what's the meaning of this uproar in this city? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Eviatar the Kohen, and Adonia said, Come in! You're a worthy man. You must be bringing good news. And Jonathan answered Adonia, The truth is, our lord King David has made Shlomo king. Moreover, the king sent him with Sadok the Kohen, Nathan the prophet, Benia the son of Yehoyada, and the Cretean and the Pleti, and they let him ride on the king's mule. And Sadok the Kohen and Nathan the prophet anointed him king in Gehon. Then they escorted him back from there, rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise you've been hearing. Moreover, Shlomo is now sitting on the throne of the kingdom. More than that, the king's servants came and blessed our lord King David with these words. May God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. After which the king bowed down on the bed. And finally the king said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who has given someone to sit on my throne today when my own eyes can see it. All, all this, Adonijah's guests grew frightened. They got up, everyone going his own way. Adonijah too, because he was afraid of Shlomo. He got up, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Solomon was told, Here, Adonijah is terrified of King Shlomo. He has grabbed hold of the horns of the altar and is saying, First, let King Solomon swear to me he will not have his servant executed. And Solomon said, If he'll demonstrate that he's a worthy man, not a hair of his will fall to the earth. But if he's found making trouble, he'll die. So King Shlomo sent and they brought him down from the altar. He came and prostrated himself before King Shlomo. And Shlomo said to him, Go on home. Bathsheba goes to the palace. And she enters David's room and we're told that Abishag was in attendance. Recall that Abishag was a beautiful young virgin who had been brought to David in order to serve him as sort of a 24-hour-per-day personal nursemaid and heat source. And the scriptures have unambiguously asserted that this was not a sexual relationship. Nor was she a new addition to David's harem. And Bathsheba's forthright statements to David indicate that Abishag's presence represented neither alarm nor intrigue to her. It's noteworthy that the only that only a person with Bathsheba's status could have gone into David's personal chambers without being announced. This is something that even Nathan could not have done. Even so, we are given a glimpse of the protocol of that era between a king and a wife. Even a wife so high on the ladder of wives uh, as Bathsheba. 
She is said to have prostrated herself before David in deep respect. And that David's response to her was quite curt, asking her what she wanted. Many of the rabbis suspect that it was Bathsheba's willingness to bow before David that indicated to him that she had a request. (laughs) Now, uh, verse 17 has Bathsheba telling David that he needed to remember that he had promised to her that her son Shlomo would be the next king. And as we discussed last time, up to this point... We have seen nothing in the scriptures that says such a thing explicitly. However, this and other passages in 1 Chronicles do claim that David had long ago settled on Solomon. And this was the result of a divine message from God through Natan that the Lord had chosen Solomon. So Bathsheba's case was very strong that David had made a vow to name Shlomo as the Nagid, the prince in waiting. And so with that, it would have been nearly impossible for another son to argue that David's intention was otherwise. But now she hits David with the alarming news that Adonia has crowned himself as king. He has essentially even been officially coronated and anointed by Evyatar, the high priest, and Yoav's, Yoav, David's military commander, has ratified it. This means that Adonia has usurped David and not waited until his death. By naming names, Bathsheba is revealing who is aiding Adonijah, presumably his traitors. And by deduction, who must be standing with her son Solomon. The guest list of the banquet alone makes it clear that this was no ordinary party and it was meant as evidence against Adonia to prove his rebellion. Well, in verse 20, she beseeches David to make a personal public announcement that Solomon's to be king implying that the only reason Adonia is making his claim is because David has been silent about it all. In other words, while within a a small circle in the palace it's known that Solomon is to be the next king from a political and a a popular viewpoint, no such presupposition exists among the people of Israel. They're either totally in the dark or it's a foregone conclusion that is the natural next in line, Adonijah will be king. Solomon is actually an illogical choice due to his young age, probably 18, 19 years old, and that lurid and infamous circumstance that led to his birth in the first place. But the reality is that Shiva's not telling David the truth. And this is because Nathan misunderstood what Adonia was doing and he wrongly assumed that he had pronounced himself as king. Now Bathsheba's not lying. She's just passing along incorrect information that she's received from Nathan. And right on cue, as David is becoming alarmed, although no doubt skeptical, 
Leaders hear all kinds of things that turn out to be untrue or one-sided. Nathan arrives on the scene. And as did Bathsheba, David's own prophet, bowed with his face to the ground, demonstrating that even the highest officials in David's administration were required to, to demonstrate absolute submission whenever they appeared before him. He proceeds to ask David the same question about Solomon's right to the throne as did Bathsheba, as though he had no idea that Bathsheba had just done the same thing. He gives David almost identical information as did Solomon's mother and even embellishes it by saying that at the feast those in attendance were cheering and saying long live King Adonijah. Nathan asks the question in a way that expresses wonderment that David would not have informed Nathan if David had decided against Shlomo and instead appointed Adonijah. Well, back in verse 21, Bathsheba told David what the real effect of his doing nothing about this would be. Solomon and Bathsheba would not survive. And the reason for this is that they would be seen as chata, sinners, offenders, criminals. What would be their crime? as in all situations regarding succession to the throne in that era. The one who becomes king usually executes others in his family who might be seen as a threat to his crown, whether that threat is real or imagined. And Bathsheba is quite right. No doubt she and Shlomo would be killed since Nathan would have little choice but to condemn publicly Adonia's ascension and such a condemnation would polarize the Israeli public so the most effective solution was always to eliminate the competition well this unpleasant prospect along with Nathan's words that Adonia had already been coronated as king was sufficient cause to cause David to act Now I want to remind you now that from the time we hear of Adonijah's banquet until the end of this chapter all occurred within a few hours. So the procrastinating David was essentially forced to act by the sheer surprise and seriousness of the matter that he no doubt also understood had long-ranging spiritual implications. Well, in verse 28, it seems that Bathsheba had left upon Nathan's arrival, and so now David summons her back. And in front of her, Nathan and Abishag are also there, and probably some unnamed members of the royal court. So David swears an oath in front of them all that Solomon is to be the next king. Finally, a long overdue official pronouncement that ends all speculation. And since a vow is an irrevocable promise, David invokes the name of his God, Jehovah, as the guarantor of that vow. Even more, this declaration is to have an immediate effect. Today Solomon shall be king. 
In gratitude, Bathsheba responds, Let my Lord David, Chaya Olam. Most translations make these Hebrew words into live forever or something similar, which makes it sound, oh, I don't know, a little like a hollow platitude meant to, meant to flatter him. However, a better translation that more captures the, the sense of it in modern terms is, may my Lord David live eternally. Bathsheba is not wishing David a long temporal or physical life. Rather, she is responding to David's sudden realization that his time remaining on this earth may well be measured only in hours. Bathsheba is expressing her wish for David to have a happy afterlife. And it shouldn't go unnoticed that both Nathan and Bathsheba's speech were apparently made to, or rather meant to shake David out of his denial that death was at his doorstep so that he finally understood he couldn't wait any longer to appoint a successor. Well, back in verse 21, Bathsheba openly speaks of that imminent time when David sleeps with his ancestors. She's frankly discussing David's death with him, something that others probably dared not to do. But there's another element to this discussion of death and eternal life as well. God had promised David that his dynasty would go on indefinitely and that the Lord would never replace it with another one. Further, its perpetuation would go on through David's son, Shlomo. So Bathsheba is affirming to the dying David that what he has done by formally appointing Solomon as king in accordance with God's will is to bring about his own ongoing afterlife and eternal continuation of his dynasty. This is because it was still believed in Israel, as elsewhere, that a man's life essence lived on in his son. In David's case, his kingship would also live on in his son, Shlomo, and in his sons after him. And thus, one could say in a very real and tangible sense that David would be king forever. This was meant as a comfort to David, not as flowery but idle words. Well, these talks must have worked because in a burst of energy and in a sense of urgency not witnessed in some time, David issues a flurry of instructions. Sadok, the other high priest, Natan and Benyah, the chief of David's bodyguard, are told to take members of David's royal court, put Shlomo on David's personal mule, and then with haste proceed to the Gihon Springs. And at the Gihon Springs, Solomon is to be anointed king of Israel. Now such a ceremony must take place at a source of running water because a washing of the candidate must occur in addition to being anointed with olive oil. Any and all of the cleansing ceremonies as ordained in the Torah require 
Mayim Chaim, living water. Living water means water that comes from a moving source. Therefore, it can't be water taken from a, from a water well or, or a stagnant pond. River water is preferable. But second best is an artesian spring. A lake is just fine, provided there's an inlet and an outlet, like with the Sea of Galilee. Since they were in Jerusalem, there were only two nearby water sources that counted as living water. The Gehon Springs on the eastern side of the city and the spring at Rogel at the southern end of the city of David, just outside the walls. The use of the Gehon for Solomon's coronation instead of the Rogel is obvious. The rabbis say that both Adonia's and Solomon's ceremonies were going on at the same time. These banquets tend to last for at least a full day, sometimes more. So by using the Gihon Springs, the two parties didn't have to confront one another. However, the news was going to spread pretty rapidly all right, between these two points. Well, Adonia may have made quite an impression by using the royal chariot with 50 men running in front and also by throwing a lavish ceremonial feast with government dignitaries involved. And while provocative, it was neither rebellious nor a formal declaration of kingship. But no one was permitted to ride on the king's personal mule but the king. So when the local townspeople saw Solomon riding on David's mule, this was indisputable proof that he was the official king of Israel. Next, the shofar was to be sounded. This was a means to alert everyone within hearing distance. And the royal court was to begin chanting, Long live King Solomon! The locals were to take up the chant in joy joyful affirmation. Sadok took with him the special horn full of olive oil from the tent where the Ark of the Covenant sat. This was not the wilderness tabernacle that had long ago deteriorated. And this was a special consecrated olive oil made from a formula prescribed in Exodus 30. It was this holy olive oil that was used to anoint Solomon. That Sadok performed the ceremony is significant because of the two high priests who served David at that time, Eviatar and Sadok, only Sadok was the Torah authorized high priest because only he was of the proper lineage. Thus with Sadok doing the anointing, future generations couldn't dispute the validity of the ceremony. Benyah, perhaps David's most courageous and loyal follower, throws his weight behind Solomon by publicly proclaiming, Amen. May Yehovah, God of my Lord the King, confirm it. Amen means, may it be so. Or in this sense, Benyah is saying, I confirm it, and I hope that Yehovah also confirms it.
Nathan's mere presence is his confirmation. And so demonstrations of joy immediately erupted in flutes and drums and all sorts of instruments were played to the point that the very ground seemed to quake. Well, after this public display, the entourage was to return immediately to the palace where Solomon would sit upon the royal throne. And as of that moment, Solomon is king of Israel. David is technically no longer king. But for so long as he lives, David is the king father. And so he retains a kind of symbolic seniority. Shlomo will not be entirely free of David's senior authority until David is dead. But in a phrase that flashes bias, some important words are added. It says that Shlomo will be king over Judah and Israel. That is, Solomon, like David, is to rule over all twelve tribes. Now this was not an automatic or a given. And it needed to be clarified. It would have been well within David's province, and from an earthly standpoint, probably a wise thing to do. To install Solomon as king over Judah, and Adonia as king over the northern tribes of Israel. For one thing, it would have meant that one son wouldn't have felt the necessity to kill the other one. For another, it would have been the easy way out of David keeping his word to Bathsheba while at the same time validating the custom that the eldest living son would inherit the throne. And finally, both political factions, those who supported Shlomo, those who supported Adonia, would have been equally satisfied or dissatisfied, depending on how you look at it. Notice that this division of the tribes into these two long-standing coalitions, one called Judah, the other Israel, was still memorialized in Hebrew thinking as of David's time, even though, from a national sense, there was indeed the one sovereign nation of Israel that included all the northern and the, the, the southern tribal territories. But let's not forget that all during this coronation of Solomon, Adonijah was still partying a few hundred yards down the hill. The strange shouts and growing noise from the city above them reached Adonia and his guests. Yoav, David's top general, always on the alert, heard the shofar blast and he wondered aloud, what's going on? And at the very moment that that question crossed his lips, the son of the high priest Eviatar arrived with news. Adonia, no doubt having had his fill of fine wine, welcomed this new guest and remarked that since this is a good young man, what else would he be bringing with him but good tidings? Well, in verse 43, the shoe falls. One can only imagine the sudden silence and the ashen faces where moments ago were only giddy conversations and rosy cheeks of inebriated celebrants. 
our Lord David has made Shlomo king, said Jonathan. So as to make it clear that this was not a similar action as to what was going on with Adonijah, Jonathan explains that Sadok, Nathan, and Benyah were present and that Solomon was actually anointed. The city people joined in the celebration. Solomon is sitting on David's throne as he speaks. It was over in an instant. Adonia's hopes were dashed. But worse, he was now on the wrong side of power. In fact, everybody there was on the wrong side of power. The only question that mattered at this point was who would die and who would be spared. The never lukewarm David prostrated himself on his bed before his God and he thanked Jehovah for allowing him to see Solomon sitting on the throne before he died. What we need to see here is that only hours earlier David apparently was perfectly satisfied to let nature take its course upon his death and have his sons fight it out for the throne. David in his self-absorption, in his infirmity, had decided not to name a successor. It was only Nathan's and Bathsheba's dramatic intervention that stopped him from committing yet another detestable act that surely would have led to a bloody civil war. And yet, David mustered what little strength remained and he used it to bow before God even while confined to his own bed. He acknowledged that God's will had been done even if he hadn't been anxious to do it. The other thing we see here is that although some Bible preachers and teachers use this coronation of Solomon to draw a parallel with Jacob and his favorite son Joseph, I would have to say that the two situations are nothing alike. Okay. We really find precious little fervor in David to even choose Solomon. I mean, there's nothing that seems to elevate Solomon as a distinct favorite in David's eyes. There is nothing that seems to indicate that Adonia was a bad man or that David eyed him with suspicion. Rather, it is that while From a father's point of view, David could not bring himself to support one son over the other or to disappoint one son in favor of the other. Bathsheba and Renathan reminded David that Shlomo was God's choice, just as David had once been the least likely among Jesse's household to become a king, but was indeed God's choice. Now this is a lesson we must all accept as followers of Messiah. And even the vastly imperfect David has demonstrated it for us here. There are times when choices are made for us in heaven. And our only appropriate response is to bow before God in submission. I know of no other way that a family can lose a beloved child and while still in deep mourning, sing praises to God's holiness.
than to just humbly submit to God's sovereignty and to trust Him. I don't know how to accept a devastating illness to our spouse when they've lived a life of fruitfulness for the Lord other than to lie prostrate before the Father and worship Him no matter how our emotions tell us to do something else. Whether he actually felt it or not David did what he really didn't want to do but he knew it was God's will and he chose to see it all as blessing. However, down in the valley below, Adonia's guests fled in panic upon the news of Shlomo's coronation and left him alone to contemplate what this was bound to mean for him. They had hitched their wagon to a falling star. They didn't want to be associated with him any longer, which tells us more about them than it does about Adonia. Verse 50 says that Adonia saw only one hope for survival. He ran to the altar and he grabbed hold of its horns. He saw this as a place of refuge. He didn't even bother to go to his father, David, to discuss the matter, to seek forgiveness. Again, Adonijah had not rebelled. He had not declared himself to be king. He had not he did not try to usurp David. He merely assumed that as next in line and with David lying on death's doorstep, that soon he would be crowned king. His crime was he was a rival to his brother Shlomo, nothing more. The altar had four protrusions on it, one at each corner. These things are called horns. There's some mild disagreement among scholars over which altar Adonijah ran to. But to me the answer is obvious. Some scholars, such as the great Rashi, point out that the national altar was still located at a tabernacle of sorts that resided in Gibeon, so he must have fled there. But that makes no sense. There was an altar right there in Jerusalem. And there's no evidence that anyone saw one altar as more efficacious than another in those days. In fact, we know from scripture and from archaeological findings that after the destruction of the wilderness tabernacle at Shiloh many years earlier, private altars sprung up everywhere throughout the land. And they nearly all were built with horns at their corners. Adonijah merely rushed up to the altar there at Jerusalem and latched on for dear life, hoping it would be honored as a place of sanctuary. I suspect it was the altar that David had built on Aronah's threshing floor at the top of Mount Moriah. Of course, just how long he hoped to stand there is debatable. That said... The character of the asylum refuge concept was very powerful in the Middle Eastern culture in those days and all the more so when it was within the holy precinct of so sacred a place as the altar. Now while, the, while an altar is not specifically listed as an official place of refuge 
in the Torah law. In Exodus 21.14, we do read this. But if someone willfully kills another after deliberate planning, you are to take him even from my altar and put him to death. It's generally believed that the sense of this passage is that the only legitimate reason that a person can be forcefully taken from the refuge of an altar is if that person has committed premeditated homicide. And certainly, Adonijah had done nothing that could even be identified in the Torah law as a crime, let alone murder. Word came to Solomon that Adonia was holed up at the altar site and he refused to leave unless he was granted clemency. No doubt Solomon's first chore was to deal with his rival, Adonia, and whatever means the situation dictated. But in Adonijah's plea, he acknowledged that Solomon was king, that he was Solomon's servant, and he sought forgiveness of his master. So his intent to recognize and submit to Shlomo's authority was obvious. King Shlomo responded by putting Adonia on probation. The terms were that as long as he remained loyal, no harm would come to him. And when Adonia received word of his conditional pardon, he came to the palace, he bowed low to Solomon, presented himself, no doubt fully expecting to become some kind of a servant. Shlomo surprised him, however, by sending him home and not inflicting humiliation upon him. Thus, not only was this aspect of the story of Solomon's rise to power recorded for us, that we might know the disposition of Shlomo's rival, but also to see that the first act of this new king of Israel was one of mercy and not of retribution. An act of deliverance, not of condemnation. And we're going to see another king in David's dynasty do the same centuries later, but on a far grander scale. John 3.17 For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world but rather so that through him the world might be saved. We'll begin chapter 2 next week.